Art on the Podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Go With Yamo. Go With Yamo is an art exhibition app which helps you to find the exhibitions, art fairs and art events happening all around you. The app displays exhibitions based on your location. So the one closest to you will be at the top of the list. But if you're planning a trip, you can, of course, change your location to a different city. What makes the app really fun is that when you are at an exhibition, you can check in and earn points, which can then be used to redeem prizes from the in-app store, such as prints, exhibition tickets, books and more. Go With Yamo also create custom virtual exhibitions for galleries and artists. They recently created the virtual space for the Art on a Postcard Winter Auction, which is definitely worth checking out if you haven't done so already. You can find all of these on their website, along with some great blog content, including artist interviews, exhibition recommendations, quizzes and reviews. The Art app is free to download from the App Store and the Google Play Store, so make sure you check it out and visit their website, www.gowithyamo.com. That's G-O-W-I-T-H-Y-A-M-O. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome back to Art on a Podcast, the podcast created by Art on a Postcard. I hope you're very well and enjoying the move towards Christmas, however Christmas looks for you. Um, Art on a Postcard has some brilliant Christmas treats. For those of you who'd like to give something a little different this Christmas. So we've got some beautiful sculptures, for instance, by House of Lucy. Um, who takes little kitsch figurines that she finds and brings them into the present day with little polymer touches like packets of cigarettes and contemporary labels. Um, They're lovely little things. We've also got an auction coming up with the artist Kojo Marfo from the 10th to the 17th of December. Um, Kojo Marfo is an Afro-expressionist who uses colour and characters to sell stories of marginalised people. But as you will have heard in the previous episode of the podcast, I am currently chatting to the photographers behind the five photography box sets. So we had Sandro Miller, Julia Phillips-Batten, Ali Adekola, Harry Borden and the brilliant Miles Aldridge, who will be um, the talking point of today's episode. Each box set contains 10 high quality prints personally selected by one of the world leading photographers. Stay tuned for this episode where we talk about Miles's use of colour and the effect of home life and domestic madness. Miles Aldridge is one of Britain's most celebrated fashion photographers who has worked for a number of international publications, including American and Italian Vogue, The New Yorker and The New York Times. Best known for his cinematic images of women, Aldridge's work often is brightly lit by fluorescent colours and depicts a world that is at once glamorous and surreal. He aggressively confronts themes of religion, pop culture and the 1950s Americana, 
through his signature brand of moody imagery and dark humour. Hello, Miles. How are you? Hello. <laughs> How are you doing? How, where are you right now? I'm great, thanks. I'm at my studio, which is my favourite place to be. Um, it's my kind of, uh, my sort of like, it's my kind of like um, garden shed slash, um, you know, kind of a cave slash library <laughs> slash archive. <laughs> it kind of fulfills many kind of um, things I need, mostly the space to think and uh, consider new work. And, uh, you know, that's my favorite thing to do. So I'm, I'm here uh, as I am every day, more or less. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. And what would a day kind of in your studio really consist of for you? Um, would it be editing or? What? Yeah, well, uh, the, the great thing about this space uh, is that it's, you know, it, it kind of, it can kind of uh, evolve and grow and change as things are required. So I've just finished working on a, a new book uh, that will be published by uh, Steidel uh, next year. And so for that period, for the last sort of three months or so, uh, the studio has been like, um, kind of like a workshop for this Polaroid book. So we, we've been able to, um, you know, lay out all the images, lay out all the spreads, uh, you know, consider the graphic design, consider the typography. And the space, you know, gives me the freedom to, uh, you know, lay things out across, whether the floor or tables or on a wall. Um, and at the same time, just uh, opened a show at um, in Stockholm at the Museum Fotografiska, uh, which will now run through until um, February. And uh, again, you know, having the studio space meant that I could uh, print out uh, like a maquette of all the, of all the images and uh, work on the, the layouts for the museum um and you know send them send them my ideas receive their ideas and respond so every day is kind of different but every day is about sort of trying to you know make the best of the work that that i'm working on you know and and um i you know i just really enjoy having that uh, having this space where i can just really kind of like you know spread out and work with my assistants and and um, you know, put something together. So, I, in answer to that question, it's always so, so something different. I mean, some days can be a lot of drawing, like working on new ideas. Some days can be more about re reading, working on um, you know, reading texts and trying to disseminate ideas from maybe a play or a, a piece of literature. Um, and then there's just you know, sort of organizing prints for galleries, for museums, for collectors, uh, which all happen here as well. You know, signing prints, numbering prints, that kind of thing. Yeah, wow. It sounds like such an exciting sort of process to be part of and also really um, collaborative, which, um, you know, I, I'm not a photographer and I wasn't, wasn't aware of actually how, you know, sort of um, many people you were able to sort of collaborate with and, and work against and with and that sort of stuff. Sounds really, really fun. Um, yeah, it, it is. It's interesting because, you know, when I when I left art school, I, I came out as an illustrator 
I came out. <laughs> Sounds like a funny expression. I was an illustrator. Uh, that has different meaning now than when it did in the eighties when I when I did come out of art school. <laughs> um, so when I when I left art school, I started my career uh, at the very bottom of the steps, uh, at the bottom of a ladder, as it were, metaphorically speaking, as an illustrator. And um, I thought, you know, after a few months of this, I thought it's insanely boring. Um, this job doing these kind of like watercolors and ink drawings um, on my own in a little room in a kind of like artist garret. And so I really kind of made a decision. I thought, I thought I just want to work with lots of people, you know, and actually my sort of instinct was to make movies and be a director. But instead of that happening, I ended up being this photographer whose work kind of has slight kind of like looks looks a bit like movies, you know, the work. Um, but I think what I'm getting at is that I sort of really felt that I, I wanted to interact with many people in my, in the creative process. And I thought in this image of the, the young art student or just left art school, kind of like, you know, stuck in a little room doing his little paintings. Uh, I just felt it was just completely, um, yeah, uninspiring, and I was uninspired, and uh, you know, I picked up a camera quite soon after that and started taking pictures. Right, right. But that was yeah. the decision to do that. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting to hear that you um, initially were, you know, you left art school as an illustrator because having researched you before this interview, um, I read a lot of interviews and reviews describing you as a fashion photographer, which I know, like some people argue, labels like this to be sort of just arbitrary ways of identifying artists anyway. But I feel that, you know, your work is just as much kind of conceptual photography in that it's illustrative of an idea or an emotion. And um, yeah. you know, your vibrant kind of color palettes and um, your how they're composed almost cinematically, you know, you mentioned wanting to make movies. Um, and I'm wondering, where did you develop this aesthetic in particular, like within your photography and um, that has become so recognizable as yours? And like, how did that come about? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. And the answer, I think, is a kind of a mixture of all of these things that I've been interested in. So, you, yeah, I mean, to be really clear, uh, I mean, I was a fashion photographer. Uh, I worked uh, with Vogue Italia and um, I was, I kind of arrived at the magazine at a period when the magazine was beginning to sort of like, I don't know, I would say the magazine was beginning to have less power. All magazines were beginning to have less power and clout than they used to. And the benefit of that for me was that the magazine had less, less, less sort of a interest in kind of controlling my pictures than they might have done if the magazines had more power. What, I, what I'm getting at is that when I started working for Vogue Italia, I was given incredible freedom, uh, kind of like carte blanche, because I feel in retrospect, looking back at that period, that because the magazines were beginning to suffer from the effect of the arrival of the internet and that their audience was now being kind of swayed away from magazines and that the readership was down and the advertising was down that actually that gave me a chance to um, take over the eight, 10, 12 pages I was given and put something quite, you know, quite strong in there as a message. 
And the reason I wanted to have something quite strong as a message was that I thought on the whole that most fashion photography was incredibly kind of inane and sort of, um, I mean, of course, you know, there's incredible images from the history of fashion photography. I should say that as a kind of disclaimer to that statement. But, you know, uh, month on month in magazines, historically, there has been more bad images than good images. I think most people would agree with that. Or not even bad images, let's just say mediocre images. I mean, images that are nothing more than a model wearing clothes. And, you know, that, I think that is the sort of the, you know, the sort of the fundamental understanding of being a fashion photographer but of course you know not only me but there's been you know many great fashion photographers who have seen it in a different way and wanted to uh say something in their work uh you know i'm thinking of particularly uh, helmut newton irving penn richard Avedon, guy bourdin um you know uh, that's i mean they're the ones that spring to mind straight away where you know every time you saw their work in the magazines it was like wow you know what an incredible idea and so you know i i always sent set my own benchmark pretty high i i wanted to be um i wanted to be taken seriously in the way that those guys were taken seriously i'm not sure i ever achieved that but maybe i i, I certainly um certainly have some fans you know but, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, I mean, Avedon, you know, had shows, you know, great shows in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and things like that. And so, you know, I mean, he really is the benchmark of a fashion photographer who took it to the, an incredible level of achievement and uh, and the work just speaks for itself, you know. So I suppose what I'm saying is that, yes, I, I began in fashion and I, I used fashion as a kind of forum, let's say. Um, but it was a lot of the things I'd seen um, in the art world and um, well, the cinematic world as well, where you know I was really moved by a scene in a Fellini film or a, a, a scene in a Hitchcock film or a David Lynch film. I was really moved, you know, and uh, I kind of didn't want to spend my time as a fashion photographer just documenting the latest clothes, which of course, in a way, is sort of like you know the job description, but actually when you really kind of look at what's successful in fashion magazines historically, it's, it's very rarely about the clothes. I mean, most people will, if they think of a fashion image, like let's say, um, you know, Richard Avedon's um, Davima and the Elephants, I think it's called. Uh, I mean, all they will remember, if they, if, that, if they know that picture, is this amazing scene with these two elephants on their hind legs and this woman in the middle. I doubt, I, I'm really surprised if they know what she's wearing as a designer. So um, I sort of saw my world and my work in, in the fashion world in the same way that I, I didn't feel beholden to represent, you know, what is going on on the runway. Uh, I sort of, in a way, I found it, you know, like, well, the what's really going on the runway is that every season it changes and often it changes in a kind of like, you know, uh, from one thing to another and then back to the one thing and then back to the other as it were, it changes, it's cyclic, you know, because it's, um, it was kind of like always needed something new and to be new, it was always off, often the reverse or the opposite of what was the season before. So this kind of like, you know, endless, 
roller coaster of um, you know various concepts, fashion concepts, and um, I don't know. I didn't find it interesting enough, and so I I took advantage of the situation I was in and and used it to kind of make my sort of like um, narratives, which were more akin to you know the stories I'd seen in cinema and or possibly paintings and so forth, you know. Right, yeah. It's really interesting to get that um, kind of contextualization um, of your work. I buy a copy of Vogue every month and I certainly wouldn't be able to, you know, turn the page without kind of staring for a long time at one of your images. Um, the One of the images featured in the box set, the I only want you to love me photograph, um, with this disgruntled woman having dropped some food, sits among this you know, citrus world. I can almost taste that image. <laughs> I can almost taste mm. the colors in the image. It's just kind of bursting with this kind of energetic color and flavor. Um, and this is such a great example of, of, of that. Um, where is this photo from? Is it from a larger series? Yes, it's from a series uh, shot for Vogue Italia. And um, it, it was really a kind of quite a simple premise actually for myself that I was, I'd been working in this way for a while now, you know, um, so what I should say is that that kitchen is a, uh, is a set, is a, is a film set in a film studio and constructed and designed uh, for, for what it's worth, designed by me. Uh, and the, 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 the palette was designed by me. But I think I'd done some pictures in this ilk before of kind of domestic madness, let's say. Um, and I kind, of, I kind of proposed the question to myself in a way to say, I wonder how many colors you can add to a picture before it falls apart. You know, like, can you, is there such a thing as bad taste in color, if you get me? Like, right, yeah. If I, if, if the color is so sort of like turned up and like contraire and um, contrasting and um, almost like, uh, you know, sort of headache inducing. How will that work, and would it would it would it be interesting? And so, with that, I designed the set in the way that you see it, uh, with this kind of checkerboard floor, and all the colours around are sort of quite, you know, as you said, sort of quite acidic and um, quite in your face. I mean, strangely, it does work. I mean, it certainly certainly works. I think uh, very well. Um, but it was it was kind of um, it was really a sort of a, a test to see if if throwing so many colours into a, a picture would could in a way destabilise it. And my, I suppose what I sort of concluded was actually, you know, no. Um, I mean, this this interesting colour goes back to again one of my sort of early confrontations with fashion photography in the beginning, which is that when I started there was this kind of really um, strange idea that uh, for a photograph to be serious or to be interesting or to be intellectual, let's say, um, it needed to be in black and white. And this was something that was really a kind of throwback from Richard Avedon and, and Irving Penn. But, you know, there was a sense of, you know, black and white photography was sort of like, because it had transformed the exterior world into these tones of black and white, that it was somehow really artistic. Um, but I always thought that it was just so like dull and uh, not, you know, that, that there was more, 
I was thought there's so much more possibility with color, but the, the you know what the 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 color photography that was kind of um, happening when I started, most of all, with a few exceptions, I must say, but most of all, the color was always quite pedestrian and sort of pretty much everyday color and quite normal. Um, the exceptions would be uh, Nick Knight and uh, uh, Baudelescu. Um, I think not many more. Most color in magazines uh, was very, very like the color you see out your window, you know, very normal. So um, I, you know, because I had this kind of carte blanche with, with Vogue Italia, I felt impelled to really kind of like push color. Um, actually, there was another one was David LaChapelle, of course, was also doing incredible color. And um, just remembered his name because actually it was, this is, you know, quite early on, on quite early on in my career, um, I had a message um, from him through through one of the team that I was working with and, and they said, you know, David really loves your work. And uh, it was so satisfying to hear that, that, you know, one of my peers, somebody I really respected, were, had responded to the work that they'd maybe seen um, and that they, um, it was encouraging. And actually hearing that encouraged, you know, only encouraged you to go further. And that's probably where I then went on and made this kitchen picture. I only want you to love me that you're, that you're talking about. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that's so interesting working with color in a way so that it's, it's almost takes something, you know, a literal image of you can read what's exactly happening, but it almost abstracts out um, on, on some level as well, where it just becomes kind of about shape and form and color, um, which is really beautiful. Um, <clears throat> so you have this narrative and this kind of abstract Absolutely, you know, I mean, when you look at the, um, the paintings or the screen prints of Andy Warhol, I mean, there's the image, but often the image is quite kind of, um, quite everyday, you know, uh, you know, a, a kind of a press photo of Marilyn Monroe, I mean, it would, would have been in its time, it would have been very, very commonplace, you know, um, but, you know, what he did with the colour, the, the his work is so successful, I think, because the colour is so shocking and, you know, it enlivens your senses when you're in front of one of those prints yeah. or canvases and you just like, you're, you know, you are, you are kind of like, well, the color, the color works its magic on you. And I think that's what I was trying with my work was that I felt that this, this one aspect of the artist's um, toolkit in a way, color was not really being um, used to the fullest extent. And that I, you know, in the same way that I felt like incredible sort of joy or what have you in front of a, a, a Warhol, I wanted to give that same sort of sense back purely through color rather than the image. The image mm. is what it is, you know, it's one of my scenes of uh, domestic madness. But mm -hmm. beyond that, or even over that, one is just receiving, as you said from the beginning of this chat, you're receiving these colors in an almost, you know, sort of sensual way. They just kind of like hit you. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've never been a fan of purely abstract work because I think it's too intellectual uh, for me anyway. But um, I think color works in an abstract way, but I think it works best in an abstract way when it's tied to a narrative image, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. That's, mm -hmm. my, that's my sort of 
take me. yeah yeah no I can agree it almost it just it evokes some or kind of creates some kind of empathy it draws you in on an emotional level but then also on a sensory level as well yeah. um this this idea of domestic madness um you know the look on her face in this image is so defiant almost petulantly sort of pouting um and it's almost as if often that models in your work are performing like an actor might. Um, do you work with models in that directorial way? Like how do you tend to get the most out of a shoot with a model? Yeah, very much so. Um, and um, I think I've been very, you know, I've, I've been very lucky with the, the, the models I've worked with mostly have wanted to go on this journey and, you know, create these quite rich, deep characters who, um, you know, it's a, it's a fine balance. I mean, some people, sometimes they sort of, you know, their first sort of instinct about my work or their first comment about the work is, you know, oh, the woman looks like a mannequin. And I, I always sort of cringe when I hear that a bit because it's not really the point. Um, it's much more the idea that she has become almost like a statue through the sort of like she almost becomes sort of like uh dehumanized by the the world that she lives in by the expectations laid upon her by society and by the the sort of like the ambitious kind of you know these are often i say ambitious because these are often um images of women from sort of like successful families you know where they sort of seem to have everything where it's you know, a lot of luxury and, uh, you know, sort of uh, all the trappings of, of, of a happy home. But I, I guess um, that's really the core of the, the work is that, you know, a home can only be as happy as the, the people in it. And all of the, you know, I guess that Beatles songs, you know, <laughs> money, money can't buy you love is what's sort of fundamental here is that the, the, the people I'm, creating the characters they're often you know searching uh looking for love in a place where they won't find it which is you know uh, um house with all the you know all sort of all everything everything kind of done for them and uh, you know there's it's they're kind of missing human contact and they're missing human relationships and that um in this rush, in this search for perfection, they seem to be, you know, running towards in mm. order to be, you know, have perfect makeup and perfect hair and perfect clothes and the latest gadgets. gadgets. And that they are, um, it, it, they sort of, they kind of lose themselves. And so the title of that piece, I Only Want You To Love Me, you know, I find it very, um, I find it very sort of profound, really, because, you know, it's such a simple statement. Mm. Uh, and it must have been thrown at many people in many arguments. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm the statement. <laughs> yeah, it's a statement, isn't it? And it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, um, it, it's, I don't know, I mean, that's the way I see the work. And the work is also kind of a lot about you know, this kind of like middle-class despair or upper-middle-class despair. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, I, my family were, um, my, my family was divorced and uh, the breakup was quite unpleasant. 
And mm. so I, th I think from a very early age, this idea of happy families and everything being kind of at peace. Um, uh, I mean, I know I always, I, I always sort of resented that, you know, and I never liked, um, I never liked this idea that people could find happiness in a, in a family. It comes really sort of from a very deep place in my, right. in my memories, you know, that because my family wasn't happy, I sort of, I guess I sort of always resented families that were happy, you know, and if I saw that, I was, I guess I was very cynical. Um, and then, so then when I sort of dropped into the fashion world where there were quite often scenes in the magazine of like the perfect couple on a yacht or the perfect couple, you know, in a shopping spree, you know, on, on in Madison Avenue or uh, Rodeo Drive, you know, it just would make me kind of like really cringe as <laughs> people pretending to be happy, you know. Um, so <laughs> I sort of set about, um, with the encouragement of Franca Sozani at Vogue Italia, sort of set about destabilizing that where I could, uh, you know, and of course I wasn't the first one to do that. There was other examples of that throughout, not only photography, but through cinema, um, where, you know, the family's questioned really, you know, it's like that great quote by, um, I forget his name now, but the great British poet, you know, your mum and dad, they fuck you up. It's this sort of, um, yeah. uh, that's, you know, it's this, it's, that's the sort of sensibility and mentality that I was coming from. Mm -hmm. And in a way still do, it doesn't mean I necessarily feel that way still, that's something from my, from my twenties. But uh, in my 50s, you know, I'm I guess I still enjoy the humour of some of those. Yeah, yeah. Statements. And uh, I think there is, you know, it would be wrong. Somebody listening to this may think, God, this guy's like really miserable. Um, I think it's important to add that this is all done with a lot of like very colourful colours <laughs> and uh, humour, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. There's a, there's a balance um, there, yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, your work is, is you know, all the other things we've discussed it being recognisable for, it's also really recognisable for its sort of surreal, otherworldly aspects um, yeah. where there's loads of humour and it, um, there can often be something sort of alien-like about your figures. You know, I think about when you, when you said about um, <clears throat> people talking about uh, the women in your figures as mannequin, it's almost missing the point because it's relating the figure in the image to something in this world, whereas actually you're constructing new worlds in each series or image. Um, and it actually in two photographs um, from the box set um, that are part of the After Catalan series, um, there, there's this Lynchian kind of quality is exemplified there. Um, I'd really love to hear some more about those if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, the, the After Catalan project was fantastic actually because I, um, that's funny because I rather like the message I had from David LaChapelle. I had a similar message from, from, uh, from uh, Maurizio Catalan saying how much you like my pictures. And um, I also fell over when I read this email. Um, but I thought, gosh, I must take advantage of this and do something with this guy. Um, and so we got in touch and, um, he, he then, uh, I said, look, let's do something, you know, I'd love to do some photography with you. And, um, he got in touch and he said, you know, I have an exhibition in Paris, a museum show, 
and I think it would make a great background to your photographs. And I thought, God, this is Maurizio Catalan suggesting to me that his sculptures would be an interesting background <laughs> to my photos, um, which I loved, you know, I mean, it was mm. very, very, um, very generous of him. And um, the amazing thing is uh, we, we only spoke, you know, uh, by email, um, more or less. And then we agreed to meet outside the museum at 7 p.m. one Sunday night, I think it was. And the idea was that I would turn up with uh, my team, so a model and a hairdresser and a makeup artist and a stylist and some photo assistants and some photographic equipment and some film. And we would just see what happens. And so, you know, and then the idea was that we could stay in the museum until seven in the morning. So uh, the museum director had agreed to, uh, to this and let us kind of, kind of, you know, have fun with his sculptures. And my, my sort of, um, I mean, I always like to have a plan. I don't, you know, I'm sort of making that sound like it was completely improvised, mm -hmm. which, you know, there was a huge amount of improvisation, but at the same time, I, I, I figured out one sort of, um, one concept that I thought would run through the whole work, which was that his exhibition was in this place called the Musée de, la, de Monet, which is the old uh, French mint on the edge of the um, Pont Neuf. So it's uh, it's a sort of, um, I think it's probably a 16th century palace um, on, on the banks of the Seine. And uh, consequently, it's in a kind of Rococo style inside, uh, you know, Rococo classical. And um, so I decided that I would bring a, a female model who would in a way represent the classical world and she would would in a way be a classical nude from the you know from the work of uh, Delacroix or Jericho or Ingres from the French classical tradition and she would be confronting his outrageous modern sculptures that was the simple premise that I went with and um you know, the thing that are kind of, the thing that was sort of amazing was that as with all of my work, there's many, many references that kind of like feed into the work. And at a certain point we were talking about Clockwork Orange and in that, in the, in Stanley Kubrick's film, A Clockwork Orange, the, the mother uh, wears different colored wigs and this suddenly seemed to make a lot of sense. So not only was this uh, the model Kind of a classical nude that she also had these incredible kind of like colored wigs from picture to picture mm. and um you know otherwise it was really a project where it was it was my female nude confronting Maurizio's sculptures and it was how the um his sculptures they're often made of wax so the, the, um, i think the ones in the box if i'm right is it the one where he's hanging on the back of the door? So we've got the one of him poking up through the floor and she's got oh, yeah. hands on the hips, the blue hair, and then yeah. the one with the horse. Oh yeah, okay. Head going for the wall. Yeah. So the one where he's coming up through the floor, um, you know, that's made out of wax and it's very, very like precisely sculpted and has incredible kind of lifelike skin. Although lifelike 
in the sense of it's lifelike, kind of like a shock dummy, you know, lifelike. Um, and so, you know, I wanted this sort of confusion between my model and his work. And so I directed the makeup artist to make her skin quite kind of like, you know, shock dummy-like, as it were, in the same spirit as the way his work looked. So that there was this sort of um, synthesis between his sculpture and my model posing. Um, I mean, the other thing that was kind of fun about that that shot particularly was that as I was setting it up, um, Maurizio said, or he suggested that the model should have a P on the head of the sculpture, of the yeah. sculpture coming up through the floor. Um, and um, the museum director was very unhappy about this idea, <laughs> as was probably the model. I'm not sure she even got here the suggestion. I don't think she, I'm not sure she, if she could pull that off. Uh, but anyway, it didn't happen. But that was very sort of typical of the sort of prankstery kind of situation that uh, you know we were having. It was quite. It was a lot of fun as well as as well as like you know a lot of work because between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. we did six pictures. Um, it was pretty fast going actually. And then uh, you know I mean by sort of 5 a.m. 6 a.m. I mean the crew were really ready for bed, but we squeezed out another couple of pictures and finished at seven and. Um, I got the first Eurostar train home. Um, wow, what the, experience, yeah, that sounds- Yeah, it was an amazing crazy. experience, actually. It really yeah. goes back to, you know, when you say about you leaving art school and being that artist in a studio, you know, thinking, God, why am I here? Well, yes, I'd love absolutely. to be working with people, you know, flash forward and you're there in this like, you know, incredible museum having this, you know, totally um, kind of mad creative experience. It just really, you know, shows that you did the right thing. <laughs> um, well, right, you know, it's true. It's, I mean, absolutely. It was kind of like, you know, in a way sort of wish fulfillment. That's, that's a very mm -hmm. good example of that. That, that shoot particularly, you know, because it's sort of like, you know, it, I'm a, it's nice to talk about this because in a way, what I'm, what, I, what I'm sort of feeling when I'm thinking about this is that, you know, with my work in general, there's an incredible amount of planning and control. And, you know, uh, you, may, you may know, or your listeners may know, but that, you know, I do a lot of drawing before I do the work. And so I, I sketch out compositions and I sketch out you know, how I imagine the body language will be and what the pose will be rather, let's say, and, uh, you know, what the props I need. I sort of sketch it all out. So I kind of have a sense, you know, it's rather like a film director with a storyboard. Yeah. And, you know, I love, I, I, I love, and I, you know, I love working in that way and going deeper and deeper into the picture before I get to the shoot, let's say. But on a shoot like that, where you have Maurizio Catalan himself on the shoot, you know, adding suggestions like why doesn't the model pee on the sculpture's head? You know, you are, you know, you are being this, you are kind of like, you are having to sort of improvise, you know, because you're kind of like rolling with the punches a bit, you know. And uh, I like, as much as I love all the control and planning that I do in my work, I also love the process of responding to you know new thoughts and new new influences as you're working um you know sometimes you know uh it can be as simple as you know seeing the model do something offset and kind of like yeah that's exactly 
that's can you do that now on set you know whatever that was whether it was like holding their chin or like putting their hand through their hair or just the way they were crouching down on the floor or lying on the floor or leaning against the wall so it's um i don't know I, i'm always sort of like interested in that side of of myself that on the one hand i make all this effort to be incredibly prepared but on the other hand i'm also incredibly free to throw that away and and see something fresh you know mm -hmm. I, I think the two go hand in hand actually I, I i believe the psychology of that for me is that by having all this preparation um I can always let go because I've got the preparation to go back to if I make a yeah, mistake. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, when people talk about, oh, why did I have to, you know, learn to draw at art school? Why can I just gone straight in with the abstract? And it's like, you know, if you learn, kind of get the basics in there and ingrained into you, then you can sort of, then you can start messing about, you know, and you, you've really got Absolutely. to rip over what you want to do. Um, you, you know, you mentioned your in influences just there and, um, your influences are obviously drawn from such a wide and rich variety of sources um, and two images in particular. Um, they're actually my favourite in the box sets, but I think that's literally because they are, are definitely align with my own kind of interests in iconography. Um, and I just think that they're stunning and sort of the, the looks on the models' faces are just captivating. Um, but included are Immaculate 3 and Mystique 1, and they both use religious iconography. Um, what projects are these two from and uh, where did the religious aspects come into it? Well, um, the, the religious aspect came into it from a memory of being um, on a kind of road trip with um, a girlfriend uh, from art school. So when I was in my twenties, uh, mm. we went to Spain um, and we took, well, I say road trip. We took a lot of series of trains, actually. It was a train trip. <laughs> and we went from, we went from the North uh, to the South uh, without a plan really. And we just bummed, bummed around from city to city. And we ended up at Cordoba in, in uh, Southern Spain, in Andalusia. And um, we were just there. It was it was it was it was lovely. You know, a beautiful place and uh, great great bars and great food. You know, drinking wine, eating tapas, and we were just uh, suddenly I heard this sound, these trumpets and drums, and then the smell of incense, and completely without you know having any idea that this was about to happen, we found ourselves in the middle of this incredible Easter procession which um you know happens every year in in that part of spain uh and it's called semana santa holy week um and they they carry these gigantic effigies of the virgin mary through the streets and typically she is um crying she's so the thing i should say is she's made of wood uh, really immaculately made like uh, almost photorealism mm -hmm. really really precise um, and, you know, highly polished and painted beautifully, incredible flesh tones and, and then wearing like incredible kind of like, you know, silks and taffeta and velvet and gold and silver. And then, as I said, it's, you know, the whole thing is surrounded by flowing incense and candle light. And, uh, you know, it's quite a, uh, quite a kind of 
quite an orgy of religion that kind of comes at you <laughs> down the street. Uh, so, you know, you're kind of like, as I say, I was just sitting in the, outside the street on this bar and suddenly this whole thing was overwhelming. And uh, I'm not religious, but I like a lot of religious arts. I love, you know, Caravaggio, uh, particularly uh, Piero, Piero della Francesca. I um, also love the music of uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. So, I mean, I've, you know, I'm, there's a lot of religious stuff that really gets to me emotionally. Um, and to see this in a way, this kind of pantomime played out in the streets in, with these wooden effigies, um, it just knocked me out completely. And I, uh, to be honest, I've, I've been back to that same city for Holy Week, uh, I think six times now since that experience. Um, the most recent time, a couple of years ago, I took my son to show him what goes on. And, um, you know, it was, it was the memory of that experience that I wanted to um, open up as a series of photographs of the Virgin Mary. Um, and, you know, just like with a lot of my work, you know, once you start scratching at the surface of an idea, so, you know, this idea was the Virgin Marys I'd seen in Southern Spain, you start, you know, making references to, you know, the Virgin Marys in, you know, churches in Rome that you've seen, you know, and you start kind of building the whole thing up and uh, obviously painted references and so forth. But I think the thing I was really trying to communicate with that series was this, you know, this sort of confusion with what the flesh was because in 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 the um, these effigies as i said before are made of wood but then painted to look lifelike and so my my sort of you know my discussion with the makeup artist was again quite similar to the one i had with Maurizio the for the Maurizio Catalan shoot which was this sort of like you know how can we make the flesh seem like um you know the un you know how can we make the flesh seem sort of unnatural as if it's like not real as if it's like could it be made of wood could it be polished you know and um work with a, a brilliant makeup artist called Ali Skendry in Paris and uh she 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 was able to find this right sort of luster that was sort of slightly like varnished wood you know um but of course you know if the if the model had been acting in a wooden way with the wooden skin, as it were, <laughs> she, it would be, I don't think the picture would be successful. I think it's because she is semi-eroticized in the picture. Yeah. Sort of like, you know, you, it's, it's, it's almost like that's one of those scenes in those kind of films from Ray Harryhausen from the 1970s where the statue comes to life, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That kind of, that's, you know, the Pygmalion story where the statue sort of, you know, the guy at the sculpture loves the sculpture so much that it comes to life. It's kind of got that sort of, that kind of, you know, restlessness to it, you know, which I, which I love. Mm. And, and uh, Mystique was a sort of a follow on from that with a sort of sense of, you know, would be wonderful to make a series of icons, um, you know, with a, a black Virgin Mary. Um, and uh, again, that very simple sort of premise sort of led to these these beautiful pictures. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it's arguably um, is the case that <laughs> Mary 
probably was a woman of colour. Um, right. Yeah, <laughs> so well, I mean, yes. It's, it's, Never it's thought a, of that, actually. I suppose, yeah, coming from that part of the world, Galilee and so forth, absolutely, yes, of course. Yeah. Um, well, Miles, thank you so, so much for chatting with us this afternoon. I know we've gone over the time that I promised you we'd be finished. No worries, as long as you've got everything you need. Too interesting, not least for the phrase, an orgy of religion, which I love. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> Great. So thank you so much yeah. for giving your time. Um, we really appreciate your generosity and are so excited for our supporters and listeners to finally see these wonderful box sets with yourself and some other incredible photographers all included to raise some much needed funds for the Hepatitis C Trust. So yes. thank you so, so much, Miles, and have a lovely My pleasure. day. <laughs> Great. Okay, thanks for your time. All right, no worries. Thank you very much. Bye. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Art on a Podcast. To find out more about anything in today's episode, go to artonapostcard.com and be sure to follow us on all our social channels at